what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Society's default emotion is distrust. That's according to the 2022 Edelman Trust Barometer Survey. It found that six out of 10 people report that their default tendency is to approach new information with distrust until there is clear evidence of its trustworthiness. Gallup found that confidence in institutions is at an all-time low, down about 40% from when they started collecting data in 1979. A survey from the American Press Institute found that 16 to 40-year-olds, that is Gen Z and millennials, consume news media daily, but that 90% of them are concerned about misinformation in the media they and others take in. Americans distrust government, health providers, the media, law enforcement, and even churches. Many of us distrust big business, and yet it was business that was the most trustworthy institution, according to Edelman. At the same time, there is a whole trust ecosystem operating online. In online marketing, we often talk about the know, like, and trust factor. But we rarely remark on how novel it is to trust a stranger enough to pay them to give you advice on your marriage, write copy for your website, or create a fitness program for you. We tend to focus on outreach, upping your name recognition, and of course we pay attention to likability. But trust? It can seem that trust is simply the logical extension of being known and being liked. But of course, that's not how we used to think about trust. Rachel Botsman studies the changing landscape of trust. She argues that there have only been three eras of trust throughout all of human history. First, trust was local. You had trust in who you knew and who you had direct experience with. Second, trust was institutional. During and after the Industrial Revolution, people sought out organized authority in the wake of massive change. And now finally, we're entering the era of distributed trust. The way trust flows through society is changing, and it's creating this big shift away from the 20th century that was defined by institutional trust towards the 21st century that will be fueled by distributed trust. Trust is no longer top-down. It's being unbundled and inverted. It's no longer opaque and linear. A new recipe for trust is emerging that once again is distributed amongst people and is accountability-based. The self-help industry has relied on this distributed trust dynamic for a long time. We can see it clearly in the earliest writers and speakers in the industry, Napoleon Hill, Norman Vincent Peale, and Dale Carnegie. Funny enough, Carnegie changed the spelling of his last name from Carnegie with a Y to Carnegie with an I-E to leverage the trust of Andrew Carnegie's legacy, even though they were no relation. And today, of course, self-help seems to be 
fully distributed, with fewer and fewer people attending church, living near family, consuming major media, and even working traditional jobs, we are actively on the hunt for people we can put our trust in. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. In this episode, we're going to use a sociological lens to explore self-help expertise, how it's formed, how it's leveraged, and how it creates value. It's the third part in our series, Self-Help LLC, which examines how the idea of self-help has come to permeate life and business, often in unexpected ways. Now, Rachel Botsman claims that institutional trust just wasn't built for the digital age. She writes for the Harvard Business Review, quote, We are inventing a type of trust that can grease the wheels of business and facilitate person-to-person relationships in the age of distributed networks and collaborative marketplaces. Now, I'm not quite as excited about this as Botsman seems to be. Sure, peer-to-peer transactions are rapidly increasing, and heck, I owe my own livelihood to -to peer-to-peer transactions. However, those peer-to-peer transactions are facilitated by companies funded by institutional wealth in the form of venture capital and traded in the institutional marketplace, that is, the stock market. So I'm not sure just how different this really is, but I can't argue with Botsman's basic premise. Trust is a big business opportunity today. Just like so many of the components of the public commons, trust has been privatized. That means trust is up for grabs by anyone who wants to leverage it as a resource for money-making. But I think that a lot of areas of social life today feel increasingly uncertain. People don't, you know, their jobs feel uncertain. They don't know how long this job is going to last. I mean, for my generation, housing is uncertain. No one knows when they're going to be able to buy a house. Retirement's uncertain for people. That's sociologist Patrick Sheehan. In January, Patrick published a paper in the American Journal of Sociology entitled The Paradox of Self-Help Expertise, How Unemployed Workers Become Professional Career Coaches. Now, you know, he had me at that title. And I was blown away by his analysis of the career coaching industry and self-help expertise in general, something that I find few understand unless they've been sort of brought up in it. Now, before I get into Patrick's analysis, I asked him how he got interested in this topic in the first place. When I started graduate school, it was 2017, and it was a time when all the headlines were Automation is going to put everyone out of work. Everyone's going to need to retrain and transition mid-career. And I was really curious about what that would look like for people. So I started to, I just started to show up at these kind of job search clubs, uh, retraining seminars. And I was struck that everywhere I went were career coaches. I was sort of skeptical from the beginning, I got to admit, because I was thinking of this as sort of like hard skills retraining. How are people going to move into another career and pick up the skills they need at age 40 or whatever. And instead, I got these people that are there given kind of motivational, empathetic guidance. And I was a little confused, right? So I got really stuck on this question where it's like, how can these people be experts in managing a career uh, when it looks like they've struggled themselves very recently? And yet people were drawn to them. Like people loved these seminars. They're there. They're 
listening with, you know, enthusiasm. And so I was, I got stuck on this paradox of like expertise. How is this person, how can this person be an expert? They don't have any credentials. They don't, not really showing me that they have anything concrete to offer. And yet people really want it. Now, please remember, if this describes you or your work, Patrick is not calling you out. That will become more and more apparent as this episode unfolds. I'm not trying to uh, adjudicate who really is an expert and who is not. Instead, Patrick recognized an unexpected social structure at the career training seminars he attended. It wasn't credentialed educators teaching job seekers new skills for the workplace. It was career coaches offering empathy, inspiration, and a can-do attitude. He wanted to learn more about why that second group seemed to be so compelling to job seekers. In his paper, Patrick divides experts into two categories, credentialed experts and experience-based experts. These are sort of categories of the ways that expertise is socially recognized, right? Also, credentialed experts are what we think of as traditional experts, right? Their credibility is based in their credentials. And those credentials represent usually some kind of professionalization process, right? They've been through an institution. They've been through a law school. They've been through a medical school that's credentialed by the state. Um, and they have these sort of universities in the state standing behind them saying, this person is an expert. So doctors, lawyers, scientists, things like that. And people trust them because of the institution, really. Now, experience-based experts are a trickier group, harder to name, right? They, their, their credibility tends to be more unstable and less generally recognized, but they can have credibility nonetheless. So instead of holding up like a credential, a, a badge of some sort, they try to prove to people that they've been through whatever problem they're trying to deal with and that from their experience, they're going to be able to offer you something, right? The first example that I had that drew me to these two things is the idea of People that are dealing with alcoholism, this will sound like a strange example, but the kind of credentialed expert in that regard would be a doctor, right? They will diagnose this as a medical problem. But then there's other kinds of experts in alcoholism and recovery, and those are people like AA mentors. AA mentors will look at you and say, I'm an expert in overcoming this thing because I've been through it. I know how bad it got. I was there and I can do it. The doctor, he doesn't really know. Like, he's not going to look you in the eye. He's not really going to understand it. And so that's where you start to get some of the tension between these different kinds of experts. Sociologically speaking, Patrick argues that there is value in both categories of expertise. And he offers up an example from Max Weber's work. You might remember Weber, friend of the pod, from my Time and Money series earlier this year. He was studying religious experts, right? If you, you can think about expertise as, as someone who has access to the divine. So a priest and a rabbi is a, a sort of an expert in the sacred, right? And he drew this distinction between the priest and the prophet. Priest is the credentialed expert, right? They get all their authority vis-a-vis -vis the masses from the church that's behind them. They can also drift away, right? They can, their sermons can not feel relevant to the people. People can kind of say, hey, the priest doesn't really get me anymore. And the prophet is always lying in wait. The prophet is amongst people, really understands where they're at emotionally, what's going on with them, and is ready to get on a little soapbox and, you know, preach the end is nigh and knows how to work the people, right? Knows how to, how to reach them, how to touch them emotionally and, and give them what they really need. So there's this tension always between the credentialed expert that might be getting out of touch and the more experience-based expert that doesn't have those institutions, but really can speak to people. This priest-prophet dynamic is 
all over it today, and often not in the most constructive ways. Whether we're talking alternative medicine, outsider politicians, or reproductive rights, there are a lot of self-professed experts railing against institutions and established bodies of knowledge. Why go to a therapist who can help you unpack your past when you can hire a coach or a healer who will help you step into the future? Why submit to mood-stabilizing drugs when you could meditate for an hour every day? Why read what experts have to say on a subject when you could do your own research? Now, these are deliberately provocative questions, and I think it's important, as with the priest-prophet example, to remember that both positions have value. There are institutions that need to be dramatically restructured, and there are alternative forms of care that are useful, and there is misinformation out there. It's when the priest-prophet dynamic lurches into all-or-nothing territory that things get problematic. Alan Levinovitz calls this an empowering epistemology. Epistemology is simply the study or organization of how we know what we know. An empowering epistemology is a way of organizing knowledge in order to feel a sense of certainty and security. Levinovitz offers up wellness culture and gun culture in their most extreme forms as two examples of empowering epistemologies. The prophets of wellness culture warn us about the priests of the medical establishment. They question peer-reviewed research while offering up anecdotal evidence of their claims. The prophets of gun culture warn us about the vulnerability and danger of everyday life, while legislator priests don't understand just how important it is to protect yourself from criminals. For instance, in health today, I mean, we see all this rise in alternative medicine, wellness industry processes, right? And part of what they're doing is an implicit critique of the medical establishment. Your doctor's not doesn't really care about you, or more often it's like the pharmaceutical industry really just wants to pump you full of pills. And I think in contexts in which you really don't know what's going to happen next, that credentialed authority, you know, with the, the person who's wearing the jacket doesn't really make you feel seen. You know, it feels, it can feel objective and like abstract and it's not exactly what people want people in these shaky times want someone to assure them want them to look them in the eye to understand them emotionally and sometimes these institutions and institutional experts just don't feel like they're doing that for people priests from the labor department might come in and teach you how to code but the profits of career coaching will help you envision a career you're passionate about So how do self-help experts generate trust? Patrick found that the first layer of trust is built by tapping into a moral universe in which work isn't a function of earning a living. It's a function of passion and self-expression. Coaches, I find, present work in a different light. They present it as something much more sacred and important to sort of your identity and and it should be an outlet for self-expression. So. The best kind of work is work that you're really passionate about. It is, you know, represents a core part of your identity. Uh, you don't do it for the money, you do it for the love. You know, money should come, money is supposed to follow when you do that, right? And this sort of approach to work really elevates entrepreneurship and particularly like passion-based entrepreneurship is the most virtuous kind of work you can have, right? You could get a job, a dull, boring, alienating job, 
that might pay you a steady paycheck. But if you do that, you're failing to sort of fully live your life. The view that these coaches are promoting is a really seductive one, and it's really motivating and exciting. The idea of being able to do work you're passionate about is enticing. Rachel Botsman, the trust researcher I cited earlier, says that buying into an idea like this, making it feel safe, is the first layer of what she calls the trust stack. Unlike truly new ideas, career coaches benefit from decades of increasing familiarity with do-what-you-love ideology. So while career coaching might be a relatively new service, the idea it builds on is not. Our self-help LLC guide, Mickey McGee, writes, quote, The ideal that everyone ought to work purely for the intrinsic rewards of his or her work, for his or her own amusement and delight, would be an appealing notion if only the extrinsic necessities of life were assured. It's a clear, evident turn in American culture in the last, say, 40 years. Like this idea that a steady job that pays you well is actually not what you want. I mean, you do want money and you do want stability, but you want to express yourself. You want to be an artist and that's how you're going to reach your highest potential. And it really is a cultural vibe. The second layer in Botsman's trust stack is building trust in the platform or third party facilitating exchange. This is present to some degree with the career coaches Patrick studied. After all, his research involved immersive experiences of seminars organized by clubs for job seekers. But more than building trust in a particular platform, Patrick found that career coaches built on distrust of employers and traditional careers. Well, I'd be sitting in these seminars and they would say, you know, the system's kind of set up against you. Like the path you're on wasn't working. It wasn't going to work. And I'm thinking to myself, you're right. Here, we can use Levinovitz's empowering epistemology framework again. He argues that the desire for empowerment comes from a profound sense of disempowerment. And that disempowerment is amplified by sharing anecdotes that highlight the brokenness of traditional institutions. These personal testimonies, as Patrick frames them, act as a way to connect with potential clients. One of the main ways I see coaches trying to relate to clients is through personal testimony. And these testimonies, at least with the career coaches I studied, follow a very similar pattern, right? Um, usually people describe their own past as having some kind of traumatic event or personal crisis. Maybe they were laid off. Maybe they realized that they weren't getting what they wanted to out of their work life. Uh, maybe they, maybe their marriage fell apart or something. And so the coach is telling, telling the potential clients that there's, they had a personal crisis. They hit sort of rock bottom. Things got scary. They didn't know what to do. But then they had a realization, right? That actually I want to pursue my passion, my childhood passion in fashion or, and I reinvented myself, decided to pursue my passion all the way. And now I've transformed myself and become this very successful coach entrepreneur that I am today. And for that reason, I can, I can help you. And that brings us to Botsman's third and final layer of the trust stack, trusting the person on the other side of the exchange. You're sold on the idea of work as self-expression. You can clearly see how the old system is broken. And now all you need is a guide whom you can trust to lead you through a foreign land. Similarly, Levinovitz dubs these guides cultural ambassadors, 
They're the people who help you cross over from one cultural system to another. It actually reflects like a classic cultural story that anthropologists refer to as the hero's journey. Someone goes through a dark period, they fight demons, they overcome it, and then they're wiser for it. And that's sort of the pitch that coaches are often giving is having been through this failure and having worked out of it, I have the wisdom that can help you through the same thing. So I find coaches often say like, I was just where you were to a client. You know, someone says they got laid off and they don't know what to do. I was you 10 years ago. In fact, I, I had it worse than you and I've made it out and I can show you the light and all that. So in that way, they, they foreground their failure, but it's a means of motivation and it's a way of sort of developing their wisdom or showing people that they do have a special knowledge that, that may help them. It's like, I was in that old model of working where I was just trying to get a paycheck and get out of there. And then I realized it was killing my soul. I was failing to live my whole self. And that is really intriguing. Like no one wants to fail to live their life fully. And so when someone says you can find more and better through entrepreneurship or whatever, it's motivating. My guess is that this pattern feels super familiar to you. You see it online every single day. Maybe you work that pattern every single day. And it can be easy to question it. Is it manipulative? Is it nefarious? Is it creating any real value at all? Or at least those are the questions I'm prompted to ask. And it was something Patrick started to think about as well. I would say the more positive and hopeful thing that I see in the coaching industry is that this is not just fake expertise, which is something I definitely started thinking about. There are real services that coaches are providing. And I think often they're not what they say they are providing, but I, I've spoken to and hung around with a lot of people that get laid off in their 40s, 50s. And there is a real existential moment there for a lot of people. And when a coach can come in and, and look you in the eye and say, I hear you, like it is really tough and you're going to go through a lot of emotions. I'm going to listen to each of them. I'm going to, you know, reflect things back to you in ways that are going to be productive for you. That's really useful. And that's not fake expertise or anything like that. That's just solidarity. That's like empathy. That's people connecting over the struggle that is like the modern economy. And I see that as a as a wonderful, great thing going forward. So maybe the expertise, the trust being forged here isn't so much an expertise about navigating a career or life or a marriage or anything else you might hire a coach for. It's an expertise in listening, empathizing, and motivating people to get back out there. Now, at this point, I know that all of the coaches listening are out there rolling their eyes. Of course, that's your expertise. I'm sure you're thinking. As Patrick said, that is a truly valuable service to provide. And I think it leads to a few final questions. Why do we outsource that kind of emotional labor to a paid third party? What structural problems create the need for all of the listening, empathizing, and motivating? And finally, what is all that emotional labor doing to the people who practice it? It's when there needs to be this performance that sort of mediates that relationship of the rags to riches, the drudgery to inspiration thing that I think ends up being sad. We're talking about this sort of cultural dynamics that are going on on top of the economy. And the, the deep story underneath is for the last 40, 50 years, the job market has polarized dramatically. And there is increasingly few what we would just call good jobs that pay well, that are not super uh, hard on the body or and that that's getting smaller and smaller. And so we have 
a lot of people vying for the very few good jobs there are left. And that's just a structural problem. There's this, there's a deep fear I find among middle and upper middle classes about losing their foothold because people know that it's empty underneath there, right? Like your next drop, if you don't get back into a professional job soon, you could easily end up driving Uber and trying to figure it out that way. So there's that anxiety. Add on top of that, all of this discourse that we've been talking about, about the virtuosity of self-expressive work and sort of the importance of knowledge, expertise is sort of is, is one of the things that we talk about as the way into that higher level of the economy is being able to really move knowledge and expertise. And so people are trying to figure out what to do next and they are really afraid of falling and they've been told that they should be pursuing a passion and they should kind of be entrepreneurial because everyone's been told, telling everyone to be entrepreneurial. And often a coach is there for them when, they've, when they're in that hard time and they maybe hire a coach or listen to a few or just watch some YouTube videos. And they say, well, that sounds really great. Earlier, you said there are fewer and fewer jobs that don't involve some sort of manual or hard labor or even just the sort of hands-on drudgery of service work. And it made me think about like the emotional labor component of this as well and how damaging emotional labor over time can be. Was that consequence of prolonged emotional labor something that you noticed among the coaches that you studied? First of all, I noticed it in myself. I, I spent a oh. lot of time at these job search seminars just listening and yeah. getting to know people that are listening to coaches. And I mean, it's an emotional load just to hear people's stories about that layoff from IBM. And they don't know about the college, their kids' college that they were trying to pay for. And now it's not going to happen. And there's marital trouble. I mean, I heard so many stories of deep psychological pain and just like identity collapse. And I gotta say, I, I would be exhausted from field work um, often just after conversations like that. So coaches are taking that on, right? And that's one, of the, that's one of the functions, if we think about an economy as sort of a functioning system that coaches are soaking in all that anxiety and trying to grab it and trying to push out something positive, something motivational. So it's a kind of it's a kind of job that is going to require that kind of emotional labor. And that's something that often goes unrecognized, but is such a difficult, difficult thing. But in the kind of economy we're running right now, if we don't have that sort of emotional outlet, if there are not people there to do that job, I think there will be a lot more crises that spill over from families into communities and whatnot. So that's another way that, that coaches are really providing a crucial, crucial service. I know that there are not enough good jobs for good people. So I want to tell the unemployed to, you know, somehow join the barricades or something. You know, we need structural <laughs> reform here. Even if you recognize the structural barriers, yes, the economy is totally screwed up. There's not enough jobs. You still got to make a decision when you're laid off as to what you're going to do. Now, I love what Patrick is saying here. We can acknowledge and even work against the structural problems that exist in the world. And we can seek out help to deal with things as they are now. This is what I see many coaches offering today and what I think many more coaches will be offering soon. There's a lot of value in acknowledging the many ways the system is broken and developing a conscious analysis of the ways systems are stacked against us. And at the same time, creating the emotional and motivational scaffolding we need to survive and maybe even to thrive. 
That approach seems to be a good one to put our trust in. Next week, we're going to shift gears a bit to explore the business of self-knowledge on Instagram, TikTok, and other social platforms. I talk with Enneagram expert Steph Baron-Hall, whose Instagram account boasts over 320,000 followers. So I created this post called Nine Types of Rest, and I just threw it on a graphic, posted it, walked away. This thing went viral. Like two months later, Sophia Bush posted it on her Instagram and I was like, oh my God, oh my word. of course, uncredited though. Here's the, the thing Ugh. is that it went viral on like Pinterest. It was before I started putting any sort of watermark on my post or anything. Mm-hmm. So it went on Pinterest and like all these different spaces. And so all these different people started finding it and, and reposting it. Um, like Jay Shetty, for example, reposted it. Now, if you're just finding the Self-Help LLC series, check out episode one on how self-help loves to frame things in terms of winners and losers, and episode two on selling empowerment through the image. If you're excited about the Self-Help LLC series, you're going to love my new book. In What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting, I unpack the historical, psychological, and economic systems that impact the way we relate to goal setting and offer a radically different approach to growth and planning. Find What Works wherever books are sold. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. Mm-hmm.